0: Hi, I'm Kimberly Young, Assistant Medical Director for Hillside. Welcome to Reframe Children's Mental Health. Hillside's mission is to help children and families thrive by providing outstanding residential and community mental health services. Our programs focus on the strengths of our kids and encourage the growth and improvement they need to navigate through life. Hillside provides specialized, cutting-edge mental health care and education to children and their families. Self-harm and suicidal ideation continue to be a serious issue in our country. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, the suicide rate among persons aged 10 to 24 increased 56% between 2007 and 2017. The CDC estimates more than 120 Americans die by suicide each day. That's approximately more than 44,000 lives each year. The good news is there's hope. Thanks to treatments such as dialectical behavior therapy, lives are being saved. On this episode of Reframe Children's Mental Health, we hear from a Hillside client and her therapist about her own personal story of recovery from self-harm and suicidal ideation. What worked and how and signs parents can look for in their children.
1: Hi, I'm Christina Fittis, a lead therapist at Hillside. So depression and self-harm, suicidality, those are things that we commonly treat at Hillside. And with everything going on Currently, we are definitely seeing an increase in uh, kiddos experiencing depression, experiencing anxiety, and you know, as a result of that, we're seeing an increased amount of self harm, increased amount of suicidal ideations, even you know, just in in looking at communities around the country, increase in suicide rates even.
2: Hi, my name is Maya. I'm 20 years old and I'm from Ackworth, Georgia. As a kid, I loved to read and I loved to draw as well. I've always wanted to be a veterinarian. So I was really huge on animals and like learning about them and stuff. Honestly, I can remember having mental health issues from when I was a little kid. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, is when my depression turned into, like, self-harm kind of thoughts. When I started having thoughts about self-harm, I felt very alone because I'd never heard anything about it before. I didn't know anybody who had dealt with it. And I remember I had tried to talk to my mom about it, and she just kind of wrote it off as, like, teenage angst. So it felt like I wasn't being heard, and I didn't know how to cope with it. I ended up acting on them, you know, and then I would confide in a friend and when I was about 15, she took me to the school counselor who then talked to my mom and got me started with a private therapist. So I bounced around therapists for a little while until I eventually was accepted into a short-term hospital before I was transferred over to Hillside for a long-term treatment. I was really intimidated by the idea of living at a hospital for several months. It scared me and I felt that I would miss my friends and my friends to me were kind of like my anchor, so I didn't know, you know it was scary going into a situation you'd never been before. and it was scary to the point that I kind of lied about my well-being to avoid it. but eventually I accepted that I didn't have a choice. So I began working with
1: Maya when she admitted into Hillside's residential program. She admitted for, you know, this exact thing, depression, anxiety. She had had a pretty serious suicide attempt and it was her second. And Maya was also struggling with being a survivor of some trauma, not only trauma with a peer, she also experienced a lot of environmental invalidation growing up, high conflict within her family, a lot of messages that she received that were internalized as her not being good enough, her being a burden, the conflict that was going on in her home being because of her, a lot of low self-esteem, lack of self-worth, not feeling like she was lovable as a human. And it all became so incredibly overwhelming to her that the idea of death and the idea of not having to suffer any longer was where she was at. And so Maya came into the residential program, into our care, and it was her first time ever experiencing DBT. And she did a lot of work with skills building, learning some distress tolerance skills, learning interpersonal skills, how to be assertive, stand up for herself, communicate her needs effectively, a lot of emotion regulation skills. So when vulnerability is higher, when our emotional vulnerability is higher, these emotion regulation skills function in a way to reduce our vulnerability so when something really big happens, it still impacts us, but it is not going to impact us to the to the level that we experience it as catastrophic and also allowing her to increase her ability to tolerate emotion because the emotional experience was often shamed for Maya when she was growing up. And so tolerating emotion became very, very difficult for her. And so emotion regulation skills also sort of taught her how to sort of sit with that emotion accept the emotion that's occurring, know that that emotion kind of like waves in an ocean will come and go. Sometimes they'll be really big, sometimes they'll be small, and it will also be calm and stable. So she can kind of ride that wave of the emotion, if you will.
2: DBT kind of retrains your brain. And so the way, the biggest way that DBT has influenced me personally is that I kind of learned like, okay, If I'm in a crisis, everything might seem crazy in the crisis right now, but I just have to be patient and wait it out and let it pass. And a lot of the DB2 skills are kind of based off of that philosophy. Like you have to distract yourself, go find someone to talk to, but most importantly, don't act on your urges. Just be patient, breathe through it and let it pass. A big thing with DBT is the three states of mind. There's emotional mind, reasonable mind, and wise mind. Reasonable mind means that you're not using any emotions when you're thinking. It's all just logical. And that might sound good, but it's not. I tend to get stuck in emotional mind where you're not thinking logically at all. You're just acting straight off of emotion impulsively. And that's also not good. Wise mind is where you want to be. It's a safe mixture of emotions and reason. So when I'm in a crisis, I'm super emotional and DBT has helped me learn to kind of wait it out and wait until I go back into wise mind before I act on anything.
0: It took lots of hard work and perseverance, but Maya was able to use these newfound skills, which resulted in cognitive restructuring and mindfulness. However, Another obstacle stood in the way. Maya's insurance was no longer able to fund her residential care at Hillside. Here's Hillside therapist Christina Fittis with more.
1: So she learned those things. We did a lot of cognitive restructuring. So helping her brain to sort of experience things differently and not sort of have the filter of negative mindset, looking at things in a negative light, having a negative perception, and really helping her explore strengths, positive qualities, and really sort of allowing that to shift her thought process. So a lot of that cognitive modification work, and then also a lot of work around mindfulness. So her learning how to be present in the moment and not sort of time traveling to the past or time traveling to the future, right? Because the past has happened. There's not anything we can do about that. The future hasn't happened yet. And a lot of times our worry takes us to a place in the future that is not actually the destination, but our brain treats the worry as fact. So that that happened a lot for Maya. And so really working on mindfulness and learning how to just sort of notice that, acknowledge it, validate it, let it go and come back to the present moment was very, very helpful for her. So she started learning those things while she was in residential treatment. Her residential care was not as long as it needed to be. So the Hillside Foundation is a really, really amazing resource that clients can have access to. And it is donor funded. It is money that is made available to extend the care of those clients who are identified as really needing the continued clinical care in order to get them to a point where they can function safely and effectively in the community and really get to that point where they're able to start making some strides toward their life worth living goals, both short-term and long-term. And Maya was at a point when her care ended due to insurance no longer um, authorizing care for her to be at Hillside. Maya was not at a place where her team felt like she could be safely managed in the community. And we we really believed that Maya was still at risk for suicide completion if she returned home because her, her residential care truly was not done. And the Hillside Foundation was able to support that care and give Maya the care that she needs and has continued to need to maintain so Maya is preparing to uh, actually head out. She's got two jobs. She's preparing to head to school in January and begin her work toward becoming a veterinary assistant and veterinarian. She loves animals. It's been a huge uh, outlet for her and, and her ability to be able to get there is absolutely linked to Hillside's ability to continue to fund her treatment up and up to that point.
2: Again, because of that scholarship, I can still go to therapy there. And if I didn't have that scholarship, I don't know where I would be right now. And just the fact that they even have the funds for a scholarship, that they'd even consider doing that kind of shows that like they really do care about their jobs. They really do care about the case they help. That knowledge of that these people really love what they do, kind of changes everything. Again, because of the way DBT kind of retrains your brain, I, at this point, like, I only get suicidal thoughts every, like, a couple times a month, which is way better than it was. And when they do happen, again, I kind of, like, tell myself, you got to wait it out, you know, work through it, pass, like, what it passed. Every single time I surprise myself because I'll have, like, a, you know, like, sometimes you're just doing your own thing. And then you have a random thought pop into your head. And so in the past, I would be like the thought would pop in my head and it would spiral and it would get worse. But now I've noticed lately, like if I'm just making dinner and a thought pops into my head, it's immediately followed by like, wait, no, I don't want to do that. I have plans. I'm supposed to be going to college and stuff. And for me, that's like every time that happens, it always amazes me because in my entire life, I've never really wanted to live. Like when I was in school, I never thought I'd make it past high school. And so... I know it's been happening for a couple of years now, but it still every single time amazes me when I'm like, wait, no, I genuinely do want to live. I want to go to college and have my career and I want to start a family someday. And for me, it's just so crazy. Like, I know, like, a lot of people probably take it for granted because they don't know any better. But for me, it's like, wow, like, that's amazing that I actually have a desire to keep breathing. Seeing that things are starting to happen, things are in motion, and the journey's actually finally beginning, for me, gives me a lot of hope, and it's like I'm on this path. I'm not just floating in space anymore. I'm on the path. I'm on the way there, and I just have to keep pushing and pushing, and one day I will be there.
1: Some common signs to be on the lookout for when it comes to depression, self-harm, suicidality. there There are several. With depression, uh, I would say looking for, you know, loss of interest in things um, that that one might have previously been interested in, engaged in, Increased sleeping could definitely be a a sign to to look out for with depression, and even loss of appetite. Those can be some fairly common signs that that might indicate some increase in depressed mood. When it comes to self-harm, some key things that that you might want to look for are um, clothing that might not be congruent to the season. So let's say it's, you know, warmer weather or weather that, that doesn't automatically come with the idea that you will be in, you know, long sleeves and pants, but maybe the individual is, has started to cover up their body a little bit more. Um, That's definitely a key sign to look for with self-harm. Increased isolation, Uh, seeking more access to things that might be sharp, maybe not obviously with the insinuation that there's going to be self-harm, but um, let's say there's, there's increased seeking of razors, scissors, pencil sharpeners. Um, Those, those are some common things that might be hidden, collected and utilized for self-harm with suicidality. Um, I would say some common things to look at, all of the things really that come along with the depression and the self-harm. If you notice someone starting to maybe give away or share things that have historically been very um, sort of coveted to them, very important to them, giving away of items could be an indicator. If you've noticed any shift of, social media platforms and content that might trend more toward suicidal themes, self-harm themes, even shows that might trend more towards those themes. I would say be on the, be on the lookout for that. Um, and definitely the more withdrawn, the isolation, um, We do have kiddos sometimes who research lethal means or might ask questions in a certain way that may not be obvious, but are looking to increase their awareness of things that could be potentially harmful, lethal, things of that nature. And and again, trying to get access to things that might be outside of the norm that could potentially have a lethal component to them. Maybe asking for... Cough syrup or medication, um, not necessarily prescribed medication, but over the counter medications, um, indicating that they don't feel well or they're sick. Uh, that could be a sign of maybe hoarding that medication to be able to take at a later date. So I would say those are some some common things to be on the lookout for. If parents start to see some of those things, you know, first steps would be inviting their kiddo to sit down and have a conversation and really being open, non-judgmental is key. Language that does not have shaming to it, does not have blaming to it, does not come across as a painful message. Maybe stating to their child, I've noticed some things that that might indicate that you are suffering or are in pain or are experiencing some uncomfortable emotions or discomfort. Is there anything that you want to talk to us about? Is there anything that you're needing from us? And and also give the caveat that whatever is said is not going to come with punishment because if there's shaming language, blaming language, painful communication, punishment that comes as a result, it, it will likely shut down the opportunity for communication and might actually increase the likelihood that their child becomes even more secretive and more closed off. So I think step number one is to just have an open, non-judgmental communication with their kiddo. Step number two after that, I would say looking for resources, um, informing oneself, increasing awareness, contact a professional before turning automatically to hospitalization because hospitalization might not be the most effective thing to do in that moment. So those would be sort of the call of action things to to do first steps. (music)
0: Thanks so much for listening to Reframe Children's Mental Health. If you'd like to learn more about Hillside, please visit our website at hside.org.